How's it going? Uh-huh. It's going. It's going. <laughs> it's going. TGIF right now. Uh, We're recording yeah. this on a Friday. And I am, I know that some people have all their days running together, but mine is still very clearly like, and there's a weekend now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do have those TGIF, TGIF, oh my God, my brain's <laughs> I, I need to go to bed. Yeah, that sounds this about what I'm right. Wearing. Yeah. How about you? Yeah, I, it's, it's funny. Like I do have a weekend at that. I have all the days could be whatever I want them to be, but there's a farmer's market near my parents' house that I've been like going in the morning to pick up like our orders from which means uh-huh. like and you do get to order things yeah the way they've got it worked is you pre-order and prepay and then everyone gets a time slot to come and pick up to keep everyone distant oh cool which has oh, good. worked really well but we are at the beginning of the alphabet which means my saturday i need to be at the farmer's market at 10 in the morning which is uh-huh. earlier than i might want to be awake on a saturday morning okay okay see i've been up at 6 30 every day so even if i get Oof. to eight tomorrow it's gonna feel good and i know that feels wrong but when you're going to bed at 9 30 Fair. It's actually really great. It's the going to bed part. Yeah. You know? This is very true. Um, It's all relative, I guess. Yeah. I've been doing a solid, like, midnight to 1 a.m. bedtime, so. I mean, normally that is what my life is like, for sure. So, relatable. Very relatable. Yeah. Um, yeah. Have you watched the Madam C.J. Walker show on Netflix yet? Not yet, but I... It okay. keeps popping up I have every time I open Netflix. One episode. I didn't watch more. Um, I am curious about it. I just haven't. I haven't felt the need on any level, Madam C.J. Walker or not, to like invest in a narrative show, mm. like to really get into like people's. Uh, I don't know. I just haven't wanted to get into a show like that. I wanted like light. Usually food-based cooking show stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, Is that sort of normal? Food, food network level thing. When you're, like, stressed or things are a lot that you, like, don't really have the energy to invest in, like, a narrative thing? Well, I think it's, like, when I want to listen to a story, I want to, like, listen to the story mm-hmm. and, like, get, in, get invested with all the characters. And I'm, like, everyone needs a lot of investment right now that I don't feel like doing <laughs> that to fictional people either. Yeah, that's very interesting. As much as I love those fictional people, which I do of Madam Walker. And as Tiffany Haddish plays her daughter, who I love. Mm-hmm. Um, so I am interested to see what she brings to the table. She had a pretty good first episode, so... Um, Blair Underwood plays her husband, and I love him, and who doesn't love him, so. This seems like a good I think cast. it has a lot to speak to it. Um, there's also just, like, I mean, I have to go back and listen to our episode, because I don't remember there being this much detail, so I'm like, what is artistic license? Mm-hmm. What actually, we just don't have a lot of information about certain things, um, both because of the nature of the time, but, like, also because people were more private, you know? They're not going to share all their most inner thoughts about their family yeah to then flesh out a series like you would today where you get like the tell-all memoir yeah somehow that doesn't feel super on brand for like really anything prior to the mid-20th century i'm just saying biopics are hard Mm, yes 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 um documentaries are where it's at i guess this is true have you watched tiger king no flip of it also can't watch that (laughs) I just feel myself being like, mm, do we have to? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, is this what we have to be obsessed with right now? Because this makes me sad. Right. I finally started just... the morning mm-hmm. show, which is like, I'm very late to the game, too. Oh, is that Jennifer Aniston? Yeah. 
Is she great in she's it? Incredible. She seems like she's great in it. Yeah, I just don't want to pay for another streaming service at this point. This is fair. The only reason I'm watching it. I barely watch the things I have. <laughs> I don't need a whole other service just to watch Jennifer Aniston kick butt. Sorry, Jen. I'm sure you're doing fine. Um. So yeah. Yeah. But it's it's the it's like the first narrative show I've gotten into since mm-hmm. quarantine started. So okay, pretty good. I would say so. Subject matter pretty topical. You know, a little bit. It's very much like me too. too- too topical? No. I, and Steve Carell's the creep? Yeah. Is he a real creep? Is he a Matt Lauer creep or a Charlie Rose creep? Because that's the barometer we have now. <laughs> I. Two nice guys that we had in the 90s. Right? Is it, that aren't anymore. I feel like that's for basically any gentleman in the public eye in the 90s is just like, oh. Oh, you're trash. Yeah. Right. Re- Regis is still okay, right? I think so. He's still fine think so he's he he retired so i mean and i think he was happily married or is happily married hmm. unlike the rest of them who are all just shoddy um questionable yes i think steve crow falls Ugh. on the questionable end of the spectrum gross is he matt lauer level bad though no because matt lauer is probably i mean don't sue me for libel but probably a sociopath <laughs> based on the stories i've heard i think he he seems at least asked for the first episode to be more on the like man child end of the spectrum than the sociopath oh. end of the spectrum. But you know, it's all bad. That's a fun type. Yeah, that's a fun type. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm really excited. I don't know if I have enough wine for tonight, Michael. Oh boy, <laughs> that is always. A I'm good so sign. pumped and like outraged, and it's all in my face right now because my face is very red. Um, but I hope I hope this is all very exciting for you, and I'm going to try and not bring it down too much. I'm going to try and find the hope and the joy, but we're gonna, we're going to do our best. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be great. It's going to be great. Yes. Welcome to Missing History, a podcast where each episode we discover the ladies we wish we'd learned about in history class. We uncover their stories, investigate their impact, and discuss how they've been ignored or sidelined. Today's episode contains strong language and references to violence and sexual assault. Um, okay, so are you ready? I don't think so, but I'm here for it. Okay, are you ready to just uh, be an active listener okay. and just join me on this journey? And just now that you know that I'm fired up and kind of angry and sad, maybe you can help me get out of the hole. <laughs> um, okay, so we're going to talk about Fannie Lou Hamer. Okay. Any bells ringing? No bells, although I like the name. Okay, okay I know Fannie Lou. I love a Lou in the middle of anyway. I had an Aunt Mary Lou, mm. a great Aunt Mary Lou. Yeah, Lou goes with everybody. Um... African-American, born in 1917. So she is around my grandparents' age on my mom's side, um, which is fun for me to think about uh, what they were both doing in the same years, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, She is born in Mississippi to a sharecropping family. Uh, Let's be real. How much do you know about the whole system of sharecropping? Like a little bit. Like I don't know enough at all, but... 
my okay so maybe you can help fill in the blanks with this Mm -hmm. my understanding is like slavery ended yes and there were all these plantations and if your family was lucky enough to either buy a plantation from a destitute family who lost everything i'm thinking this is my gone with the wind Mm -hmm. reality check of like those people weren't necessarily still owning their property a lot of them were i'm sure but then you would have people coming in and buying all this land because all these people lost significant amounts of wealth. Um, and there's a lot of turnover. And then there's like the reconstruction era. So like um, African-Americans are getting a lot more uh, forward momentum for a little bit, mm-hmm. but then very quickly white people overtake the land again and overtake all of the systems in place. And sharecropping is you basically are the landlord of the crop. And the poor black people who have never had any money and can't really, like, start new rent or have to have to farm the land for the owner and they take, like, a pittance of the yield or of the profit in order to, like, stay on the land and have a job. Mm-hmm. Is that enough detail? I mean, it's... A screwed up system is what it is short yeah short and sweet it's like in a lot of ways it's similar to the like way like basically like any large company town would have worked in that period which is like the owners own yeah. everything and so if right. they're paying i guess it's like it's like it's like the english tenant farmer style where like you know like, if you go Jane Austen style, like, he owned an estate, and, like, part of the estate's income was all of the people he could have rent his land. And that included farmers, as well as, like, little houses and, like, little villages were a part of their estate. So they all had to pay into his mansion or whatever he was owning. Yes. I, I think, like, the biggest difference is, like, sharecropping. The system is built in such a way that, like, sh- the sharecroppers never accumulate enough wealth to get out of the system. So it's not like they're, like, a self-sustaining oh, farmer an who's just paying rent. It's, like... Detail. They're basically, like, in debt, so in debt to the landlord that they're kind of stuck there. Yeah, and then there's a debt part, too, yeah. right? Because the rent is too high for your crop to ever yield you enough to own your own land right and you're always like if you need to borrow money for something if you need equipment if you need let alone the fact of like crops are consistent every year right michael never change especially when you have no supplies and um potentially maybe i've heard apocryphally in this woman's life uh the sharecroppers would do things to the land to maybe make it untenable and then Somehow come in with the magic solution of like, oh, your crops didn't work last year. I guess you got to work five more years for me. By the way, we fixed it. Um, I got a tractor, and now you can uh, bring in all the cotton. Oh, boy. Also, when you're growing cotton and not food, it makes it a little problematic um, if you're trying to buy food. Anyway, there's a lot about sharecropping. I need to read more about it. The basic three things that I found, uh, or three different types of contracts that I found, was uh, you can rent a plot of land uh, for a certain amount and keep the crop, but you rent the land. You can work on the land and earn a wage from the landlord for, like, working. Mm -hmm. So basically, like, paid what we were doing before the war at this point. (laughs) You know what I mean? And then... um, 
no money necessarily, no like rent fees or anything like that, but literally like I got 10 bales of this, you get six as the landlord and I keep four Mm. to either sell or use for myself. Mm -hmm. So there is like variations on a theme, but definitely manipulated to a level of like the good old days vibe of white ownership of everything in the South. Um, It's a really bad system. Yeah, it sounds awful. It's a bad system. It's a bad system. And when you're sharecropping, you're, and you let's put it this way. When you're a young African-American girl child in 1917, uh, the world's your oyster, I'm sure, in Mississippi as a sharecropper. So that's the circumstances she was born into. Um, let's add a little more onto the pile and say she's the youngest of 20 children. Excuse me? 20 children. That is. In Montgomery County, Mississippi. So many children. That is so many brothers uh-huh. and sisters. Ugh. Uh-huh. This will play a very interesting thing in a little bit. Um, so she's in a giant family. She's about. Uh, she gets an education up until the age of like preteens mm-hmm. and um, then has to help work full time because the kids are aging out. I actually don't know how many of the children survived. It's the early century. So like, and they're in not great circumstances. So I'm sure it wasn't great for health and wellness. Um, you're also working horrible conditions. So she has to help out on the farm Um she gets married in 1944 to Perry Hamer. So her name then becomes Fannie Lou Hamer from Fannie Lou Townsend. Um, the couple wants to have kids. They try to have kids. She has a couple issues um, getting pregnant or maintaining the pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So uh, something with like a miscarriage or a stillbirth. So it's pretty rough on her. And um, she goes in... Let me just see. So she's sharecropping on... um, I just want to make sure I get all the characters in. She's uh, sharecropping on the plantation of Mr. Marlowe. And uh, her family had lived there for many years. Um, The families were known to each other. And she was on... like Because she was a tenant of the land, Like Marlowe knew who she was. Mm -hmm. Um, She gets married to Hamer. They continue sharecropping. She tries to get... To have kids of her own, um, it doesn't really work out, so they end up adopting two daughters. Because in 1961, which I can't do math, let's figure out how old this this sweet gal is. So let me just... 44? When did I say? Oh, you're so much better. Yeah, 44. 44, she goes in to the doctor. And she goes, I think something's wrong. And he's like, cool, let's check you out. Oh, we've seen, we see that you have a tumor on your uterus. So we should get that removed um, because cancer's not great. And you're 44 and it's not a good time. You know, like that's usually indicative of, it's also the early 60s and we don't know about cancer, let alone like female cancers. It took a long time for us to realize what was good about getting a pap smear and shit like that. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure for Mississippi black women, it was just great at this time because I found out something that was called a Mississippi appendectomy. Do you know what that is? No, but it doesn't sound good. This is where the rage really starts, Michael. Hang on, let me get some wine. Oh, no. She gets, she goes in to have a tumor removed and she comes out without the ability to have any children. 
whether she wants to or not. Because they forcefully sterilize her without her consent or knowledge. In 1961. In 1961. A good time after the Nuremberg trials. A good time after, you know, we decided that eugenics maybe wasn't the way forward. But lo and behold, some of those little ideas tend to persist. And uh, so much so that it had a colloquial term in the South. And that's what a Mississippi appendectomy is? Yes. Yes. That's atrocious. By by her estimation, which, I mean, take that for what you will. It's not like she collected data or there was a lot of stuff going on. But in her community of other black women, she estimated, after talking to women about it, that six out of ten poor black women... Um, who were deemed by their white doctors to be uh, unsuitable to have children of their own. Now, in her case, she had a tumor. There could have been a bizarre world where this doctor was like, this whole um, uterus is not viable, or like, I don't know. But it's it's because it had a colloquial term and she was of a poor black background, um, it doesn't look good for the reasons why she had medical procedure done without her consent. So she Oof. gets to wake up to that. Um, and go figure that kind of like, I don't know what's the word, motivates her to maybe change some things in the world and her life and her state. Um, but the nice thing is they do adopt two daughters and those children go on to help spread the legacy of their mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, one of her daughters passes away later, and they end up adopting the grandchildren as well and being, like, guardians to the grandkids. So she clearly was a good mom and a good family member. Um, so now she's getting going. She's got, I mean, she probably had, with a lifetime of uh, that kind of treatment, I can only imagine that it's just fuel on the fire of her indignation. So she and... A big portion of the rest of the country are on the same page of stuff has got to change. It's got to change. And if you think about 1961, 1962, you have this wonderful new uh, president, this young, charismatic, progressive, quote unquote progressive, (laughs) 1960s progressive (laughs) um, fella who's like charming the pants off the country and everyone's just kind of got... Well, white America has money and there's positivity. You know, there's this like golden era for Democrats Mm -hmm. of like, look, what can't we do? But for black Americans, it's a very different time of just like, we're done with this. We're organized. Let's get some stuff done. And the civil rights movement is really kicking off. So she attends a meeting by the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which are the people that I believe did all the freedom rides and like coordinated a lot of nonviolent protesting, mm-hmm. which I think that's the main success. One of the, well, the main success is like the pursuit of civil rights, but like the reason I think it touched so many people and was so su- successful is its nonviolent pursuits. Mm-hmm. The fact that they did not resort to, um, an eye for an eye mentality. They genuinely tried to keep it civil, no pun intended. <laughs> so, and it was just like it—it it only highlighted the mistreatment more 
by the systems in place. Like sicking mm-hmm. dogs on people just sitting at a lunch counter. It it made the situation as, as ludicrous as we see it now. Right. You know what I mean? Like, why are you freaking out so much? They're just sitting at a counter. Like, what is this thing that we have in place? And why, why does this bother so many people? For young kids at the time, it didn't make sense. And that's why it's a student nonviolent coordinating committee. It started out of young people getting together, white and black, realizing, like, we need to do stuff. And we need to do stuff and not cause more violence to people. Um, that unfortunately doesn't happen because the result of this is constant persecution, especially for the black members of the per- party. I mean, in some cases, people get killed. Mm-hmm. I mean, lynching is commonplace in this time. I mean, it's just a history of trauma for these um, communities. So, sorry, I'm just like going off. Okay, so she goes to this meeting of the SNCC. Uh, she is... She is motivated. She hears stories about how people are just denying the right to even vote. She gets to hear boldly and proudly that she has a right to vote and it is her voice that she's allowed to use and this is how. And you can you can do it. No one's told you you can, but by the way, you can. And she's kind of like inspired by this and she's going to decides to help and her husband is proactive with it and wants to help her as best he can. So it turns out that as they as they become more serious with their advocacy, like she goes off to do that while he and the girls continue sharecropping so they can maintain their life. So like so, mom's got a job, you know what I mean? Like working woman, early 60s. Yes, um, we do love she that. She becomes an organizer. Yeah. I also forgot to mention that at some point she, I mean, despite her like kind of really busy childhood working so young and like doing all that, she did learn to like, she had a good education. She learned to read and write. Um, and she also was able to work as the timekeeper at the plantation. So, like, she has a, she has a decent education at the time. And um, because of this, she uh, kind of focuses a little bit on the literacy test aspect of voting rights at this time. Mm-hmm. Like, that was a big reason. Um, well, it's not a big reason. It's just one of the big highlighted moments in this, in this uh, Voting Rights Act that you can't test someone on whether or not they can vote. It is a right, and therefore it doesn't have qualitative things besides age and citizenship. Mm-hmm. So if you're good, you're good. Um, I don't know if anybody's told you that, uh, but quite honestly, it's it's your right. You have a right to vote. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, so she starts to organize everyone. Because she can read and write, she gets to organize everyone in the same way. I've also heard someone say, like, Fanny Lou got them in there, got everyone to, this is a generalization, but she was, she was the one teaching them to read and write so that they could go and vote. And she was going to make sure that everybody that was going into the voting booth, like was prepared for what they had to do because they've never been mm-hmm. educated on what to do as part of their civil practice. So it's kind of a teachery aspect to her. I don't know how apocryphal that language is, but it was kind of a nice image I liked. Um, So they try and get about 20 people to go to Indianola, Mississippi Courthouse, and try and register. Mm -hmm. They haven't even voted yet. They're just trying to get their paperwork done, which anyone who's been through that process with government paperwork knows it's a fun process anyway. Mm -hmm. So I can't even imagine, like, a violent outcome at the end of it, potentially, (laughs) as making it even more of a reason to get in the room. So Mm -hmm. anyway... 
they're driving in a school bus <laughs> to go. Because you get everybody into the bus, the local bus, we'll drive them over there, we'll register to vote. Who wants to go to the Mississippi courthouse to register to vote and be seen by the cops and their fellow citizens? Do you want to put a, a target on your back? Um, so they go in. They were denied the right to vote by the literacy test. They were harassed on the way home because police stopped their bus, gave them a fine for $100, and told them their bus was too yellow, and that's why they got the fine. Their bus was too yellow. Yeah, because they were like, what's the fine for? And they're like, your bus is too yellow. It's a school bus, everyone. It's a school bus. You know, I just like... So, I, I, I look for more creativity in my, like, harassing white supremacist law enforcement figures. It's just disappointing. Make America great again. Um, this is what they're talking about. I'm just saying. This is the decade that they're talking about. Pre-68, when everything really hits the fan, this is the time. Oof. This is when little Donnie J was a little spunky little kid running around, 10 years old, happy as clam. This is what he's talking about. He liked this time. Mm-hmm. Just to be clear. Sorry. I'm okay. It gets so much better. <laughs> okay. So, uh, their bus was too yellow. She gets home after a really successful day. Oh, wait. No, it was terrible. But the other thing that happened is while... I think it was this one. So... Can you imagine being a group of African-Americans in a bus in Mississippi? You've already been denied the right to vote. You know you've been harassed by people. Now the cops have stopped you, which, I mean, in 2020, that's scary for a black person. So imagine 1960-whatever, too, about it in a rural Mississippi road. The white cop pulls you over. He starts to give you tickets and stuff like that. So what does Fannie Lou do? She starts singing in the back of the bus. And she starts singing this little light of mine. And gets everybody to, like, sing along and, like, focus on the thing we're actually doing. And, like, let's all remember why we're here. Let's let them not separate us with fear mm-hmm. is sort of how I feel it. Anyway, sorry. This is so great. I love her so much. Okay. <laughs> um, sorry. I'm, I'm all distracted. So, okay. So she gets home. They get rid of the, I guess, two yellow bus and everybody paints it i don't know what they do with the yellow bus <laughs> they go and they try and figure out how to get a hundred dollars to pay the fine um and then good old mr marlowe comes to see fanny lou and he had been told by someone that she was causing trouble up in indianola trying to register to vote and he goes down to her house that night which Oh, Mr. Marlowe's at our house, you know, the big landlord who has our livelihood in his very hands and on his property. That's not intimidating at all. Um, No, I'm sure it's going to go great. And also, like, you have a full voice in those kinds of situations, let alone when it's in your own home. Um, So anyway, he goes up to her and he goes, like, I heard that you were trying to register to vote in Indianola today. And she goes, "Uh, yes, sir, that's what I was doing. And he says, well, you know what, Fanny, you just, you can't be doing that right now. Mississippi's not ready. So I need you to go back to Indianola and withdraw your application. Because, of course, she passed the literacy test, okay? She, she was going in there prepared. She knew what was up. Um, 
And he's like, Fannie Lou, you got to have to withdraw that. Mississippi, like I said, Mississippi's not ready. So you need to wait until we're ready and then you can go vote, okay? Boo, 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 boo. By the way, do you like that we took away your right to have a kid um, without your consent? Isn't that fun? Um, and she goes, okay. And <laughs> in her self-explanation, which is such like a tactic, I usually just say, I don't remember being a smart She's like, I don't remember talking smart to him. She says it like that or something. Mm -hmm. Basically, Katie's interpretation is like, I didn't mean to be a smart ass, but it just came out of me natural. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Which I don't think is quite of a... I think she's genuine. Like, she was just like, well, he goes like, you need to withdraw your application. She refused and said, "Um, well, sir, I didn't go down there to register. He said, yeah, you need to um, take away your application for me because of this, right? I'm Mr. Marlowe. You need to do it for me. Mm -hmm. And she's like, well, I didn't go down there to register for you. I went down there to register for myself. So. Yes. It doesn't, basically, it doesn't really concern you. Yeah. Because it's. So please back the fuck off. My right to vote. They told me that. You have your right to vote. So you go vote and I go vote. Vote for a vote. Oh, is the 60% to 80% black population of Mississippi a problem for you if we all vote? I can't imagine why is that, that would a problem be, for you. Like why would that be a problem for you if all of the people who are poor and put under heinous circumstances by the systems you put in place, uh, why is it problematic if they then express the right that you gave them in the constitution? Hold please, I need to sip my wine. <laughs> You know, when you put it that way, I can't possibly imagine why that would be. If Democratic leaning people vote, Republicans don't win. Sorry. (laughs) That's why you're going to see voter suppression. Um, Anywho, so she gets a little smart with him. Her words, not mine. Uh, It goes very well. He orders her off his land. Um, there's some sources that say that, uh, her husband stayed and like tried to keep, uh, working the land so that they could maintain, um, oh, uh, no, I'm sorry. Based on their like contract with him, he was forced to stay and harvest where she got to be kicked off. Like he was that kind of landlord. Like you have to stay cause this is your job. But I mean, it's just like such 1840s policy it's so nuts so they're like okay well i guess we'll go to ruleville mississippi in a different county uh with none of their stuff because marlo gets to confiscate their property as part of their like debt um also i think i think it was around this time that um her husband is like you know what it's not it's also not safe for us either so we should go live with some folks of yours um Mm -hmm. and the kind of turnover in indianola uh somebody came to their home and shot their house 16 times they weren't there that night luckily Mm -hmm. but they were realizing the stir they were cult they were kicking up and so had to make concessions for that which i just want everyone to just maybe try and think about how that would feel that you just had to like leave your house one night because you think somebody's going to come and shoot you um fun fun times to be alive Yeah, that's one way of putting it. Make America great again. Okay, so. um, I know I'm doing just a crap job at this. I'm jumping all around. So she continues to uh, advocate for the right to vote. She does successfully register to vote in 1963. So the full, like, two years of trying to. 
Um, it's June of that year. Uh, as they are coming, as they're stopping their bus, which I guess wasn't yellow because they didn't get stopped in the bus. They were able to go in and try and get some food somewhere. Um, they go in and go to a restaurant that's at the bus station. And, um, they sort of, I don't know. It didn't seem like it was like a genuine attempt at a protest or if it was like an unfortunate accident or there was a misinterpretation. Um, but they sit at the lunch counter that was segregated and refuse to leave. And then the cops get called and then all of the bus riders get arrested and she gets taken to jail. Um, while she's there that night, um, she gets taken into another jail cell and the way that she tells it, uh, there are two black men in the cell, the white guard or traffic patrol gives his club to one of the black men and tells him to beat her when he is exhausted. She, well, by the way, she's five foot four and in her late forties. Um, when he is done, he gives the club to the other inmate and tells him to do the same. And then she starts to scream and react. And, uh, the cop then tries to help. So she's beaten by three grown men, um, in a jail cell that night. Because of those injuries, she gets um, a blood clot behind her eye, permanent kidney damage, and leg damage that affects her for the rest of her life. So I'm really sorry to tell you guys that. That's really bummer. Um, yeah. So the rest of the year happens. So just to be a little more clinical. So it's June of 1963. November of 1963. Kennedy is assassinated. This bright gleaming hope of the future of America is shot. Uh, the country is reeling, is in mourning. President Johnson takes over from being vice president. Um, he is from Texas. He's a Southern Democrat. The reason he was selected to be VP, a lot of people think, is Kennedy was Boston, Catholic, new, young. Johnson was old guard, Southern big old Texan. It was a blend of the Democratic Party at that time. And was um, and also Johnson was kind of a ridiculously talented legislator. Mm -hmm. Like he could get he could get the politics done. And he had that kind of like, in my opinion, he had that kind of like bro -y <laughs> energy that got everyone to like both like him and appreciate him mm -hmm. and like fear him. And you know, he was like six, four or whatever and like screamed and said damn hell and smoked a cigar and did all that kind of old man stuff from the 60s. Mm -hmm. That like Don Draper shit. Um, he's good for the time. So all of that's happened. Fannie Lou gets out of prison. She has permanent kind of injury and issues with that. And uh, she co-founds the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. Which the idea behind was as the election was coming up. So Kennedy gets shot the year before another election. So he's probably starting his campaign for re-election at that point. Mm -hmm. Or going to in the coming months. Um, and Johnson is pretty much the shoe in for 
candidacy at the convention. He's kind of an incumbent, but there's been a lot of shakeups. So, like, I think the general consensus was, like, for the Democrats at least, was, like, let's not rock the boat. Let's just maintain the course, do all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, uh, the convention is, like, in August, I believe. And along with a lot of pressure from the civil rights activists at the time, he did sign into law the Civil Rights Act of 1964, in July, so right before the Democratic convention takes place. Mm-hmm. I'm sure as probably a really good move going into that convention, but that also caused some tension with some of the like Southern Democrats that he was trying to get delegates for, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't want to bore you too much, but I do find a convention very fascinating. Um, Especially since we're about to have one in August again. So, yeah. So, um... To make matters worse for Johnson, Fannie Lou makes this uh, Democratic Party called the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. And their idea was that they wanted to be seated um, in addition to or to replace some members of the Mississippi delegation of the Democratic Party because they felt that the current delegation did not accurately reflect the members of their state. Oh, by the way, you don't let... You don't let the majority of the population vote, so how is this a representation of the state of Mississippi? Mm-hmm. Oh, hey, America, here is a really crap mirror for you to look in, and I am the face of it, and I am Fannie Lou Hamer. Yes. Listen to my story. So now we get theatrical, okay? This is the movie I want to see. Hamer and the members go to the Democratic National Convention, which I believe is in Dallas. So... Let me just, let me, let me cross check that and make sure I am correct. Nope. It's in Atlantic city. Okay. For a second, I thought it was in Dallas. I was wrong. That would have been worse. So we're in new England territory, but all of the representatives are there of all the States. Mm-hmm. Also, a lot of the summer Democrats were actually campaigning for Barry Goldwater, who was the Republican candidate. So let's talk about where your loyalties lie. Okay. This is when the great schism begins of like, are Democrats conservative or are Republicans? We don't know anymore. Oh, once they started doing civil rights, Republicans became increasingly more conservative. Mm-hmm. Just for the record. Um, okay. Uh, so the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party goes. They start. They ask to speak before the credentials committee, which I don't even know who's involved in that. But I do know that there were TV cameras watching that committee that mm-hmm. night because... I'm sure all of the press was like, ooh, this lady from Mississippi is going to talk, and Johnson's from the South, and it's been a crazy year, and we just signed the Civil Rights Act. Let's see what this is going to be. So they go to view her, uh, or they go to watch her speech. She's in a very lovely dress. She's ready to go. She gets all wired for sound, and she starts to give this speech. And in the speech, she details uh, her life, what's happened to her thus far. And she goes into explicit detail about her night in jail in South Carolina. Mm. Um, and then at the very end, well, no, I can't tell you what happened at the very end because, well, I can, because it, it does get aired. But in the midst of it, Johnson had heard about her and um, panicked, I guess, and went to, decided to hold a sudden press conference um, to, to take away the cameras mm-hmm. from her speech, which... Oof, that's a little um, desperate. 
Good read of the situation, Michael. So Johnson goes to the speech and all the press is like, oh, we should go listen to Johnson because he might say who he wants his VP to be because he hadn't told anybody till then. Mm. Um, who's your VP going to be? And that's a big tell in the convention. That's the big hubbub. Hub, hub, hub. So let's, I mean, this is just the credentials committee. Let's go over here. And he goes up and he says like, ladies and gentlemen, it's been nine months since uh, President Kennedy was assassinated. Let's all take a moment to remember that Sterling leader of the time, you know, and another person was shot on that day. So he commemorated that guy. And he's like, just want to remind everyone it's nine months. It's nine months since that happened. Isn't that tragic? Okay. Thank you so much. And like, by the time he's done, they go back to Hamer and she has finished her speech. Mm. So the timing of it was pretty good. Uh, however, it wasn't very, um, subtle. And all of the press were like, well, what didn't he want? That was a kind of, we were, I mean, he should have gave him the VP thing because then they would have run with yeah. it. But he didn't really give him anything to talk about. So they were like, what didn't he want us to talk about? I guess this lady had something to say. Let's go back. We had that tape, right, Jim? Okay. <laughs> what did she say? And they like replay the tape. And then they also show her speech on other times, I think at the evening news. Mm-hmm. And she's saying a personal story about a victimization moment that happened to her. And then at the end, this is the audio I wanted to play. Let me just get it. At the end of the story is sort of the like um, best moment, I think. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's all pretty good, but. One white man, my dress had worked up high. He walked over and pulled my dress. I pulled my dress down, and he pulled my dress back up. I was in jail when Medgar Evers was murdered. All of this is on account of we want to register to become first-class citizens. And if the Freedom Democratic Party is not seated now, I question America. Is this America? The land of the free and the home of the brave, where we have to sleep with our telephones off of the hook because our lives be threatened daily because we want to live as decent human beings in America. Thank you. So that's detailing the last bit of her story in the jailhouse, but then also going on to just, you know, while all of that was happening in 1963, Medgar Evers did get shot in his driveway of his home in front of his wife and children. Mm-hmm. And that was a huge blow to the civil rights community, but also like a real, I think for anybody with a heart and empathy, a real um, hard lesson to learn. Um, it it just, it, it uh, the movement I think graduated to a different level at that point. Medgar Evers was a definite turning point of compassion um, from the powers that be towards the cause. I think because mm-hmm. it's really hard to make a case <laughs> against somebody um, who got shot in their own driveway. You know what I mean? So clearly that affected her, mm-hmm. um, and this cause radicalized her further uh with that kind of knowledge her own experience and so she's pleading for their party to get a seat in the democratic party um of mississippi uh it's a really good speech it's about 20 minutes long 
you get to see her televised, so you get to see her face give this speech, and she's overwhelmingly moved, and I can't help but when somebody's, like, fighting through tears to say something, or, like, having, and maybe she's not even crying, she's just emotional the whole time talking. Yeah. You can tell that there's, she's, she has an audience, and they are listening to her, for good and for worse. Um, so... I recommend it for viewing if anybody wants to get to know Fannie Lou a little bit better. Um, Johnson hated it. <laughs> Does not surprise me. Johnson hated it. Johnson, devil's advocate. Um, he was a VP that became president without being elected. So he's never been elected president. So that's hard for him. <laughs> um, he did sign the Civil Rights Act. Uh, that was good for him politically. But also bad for him because he alienated all these white Democrats that the, he had then schmoozed for this convention. And then Fannie Lou's coming in to just kind of derail all the work he did. Mm-hmm. Not that it's an excuse, but he didn't care for it. Um, they don't get seated. <laughs> Go figure. Shock. At that point, there was a lot of reasons for like, why do you want to overturn the apple cart? What's your alternative, Barry Goldwater? What's he going to do for you? Stick with man like Johnson kind of thing. Like, let's stick with the status quo and, like, we'll figure out the race stuff later. Um, politicking at its best. So, Hamer's not discouraged. She organizes um, Freedom Summer, which I didn't do enough research on because I got caught up in the uh, forced sterilization and jail time. But it was uh, June of 1964. Oh, oh, it was the summer that they tried to get the most um, African-American voters registered Mm -hmm. in the state of Mississippi in time for the election. So she helped organize that. She got to concentrate on that. And then also, like, once... The convention was over. She had to get all these African-Americans in Mississippi to actually go vote. They got registered, but now she has to go get them to vote and see what that does, Mm -hmm. because that only enhances her cause. Uh, Also in 1964, she decides to run for the Mississippi House of Representatives. Uh, She's barred from the ballot through a lot of nonsense. Um, The lady at the office... uh, Called her and her person, uh, the person she was with, the N word, uh, multiple times, being like, "Oh, these mm, want to vote. Oh, they want to. Oh, they want to run for Congress. Isn't that cute?" Kind of stuff, you know. Really, Oof. just all of the typical horrible things that you would think. However, bit by bit, uh, progress does happen. Um, in 1965, she becomes one of three black women to uh, stand in the U.S. Congress. Uh, for the first time, and they protested the Mississippi House election of 1964. Um, it was an unsuccessful protest, but it did mark an occasion of, like, they were allowed in the building mm. <laughs> for once. And not only one, but three! Isn't it amazing? <laughs> Ugh, it's so terrible. She uh, travels. She She's now known for these powerful, impassioned speeches that motivate and bring people together. So she continues to give speeches on behalf of civil rights. Uh, she helps to found the National Women's Political Caucus. Um, she starts to look into um, 
a thing in 1968 she starts a thing called a pig bank (laughs) so a way to raise pigs for black farmers to create more money Mm. because pigs eat everything it's easy to keep them relatively um so she started a kind of trade in trade out thing to help kind of boost economic independence among these black families so that they could get out from the sharecropping life that she was born into Mm -hmm. so yeah uh she helped with the freedom farm cooperative um that helped build up land that uh african americans could farm and own themselves without having to pay a landlord she bought a bunch of acres of land and focused on um african american uh economic infrastructure because when you have money all of a sudden people want to listen to you so yeah she uh helped to build 200 units of low-income housing in the city ruleville that she ended up moving to when she got kicked off the sharecroppers Mm -hmm. land so she invested in the infrastructure of her own community um she traveled to africa for a little bit which i think was a really eye-opening experience for her Mm -hmm. To see a land full of people where this kind of history wasn't just baked into your daily life. Um, You're the majority. You're the proud people of these nations. Like, it's just a different outlook. And I think it really, like, stuck with her the rest of her life. Um, Yeah. uh, She... Still had a lot of health problems towards the end of her life. Mm -hmm. Um... Her kidney issues. She did have uh, breast cancer in her 50s. Um, And so in 1977, at the age of 59, she ended up passing away of breast cancer. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure her other health ailments did not help. Um, But the nice thing that I found very last minute, because I was a little sad that there wasn't more about her. But um, what I did find is... In Ruleville, I believe, uh, some organizers got together and raised money, and there is a statue of Fannie Lou Hamer in the city of Ruleville. She's it's this picture of her with like a um, an audio. I think it's like one of those old timey radio things. It's got the cords to like a PA system mm-hmm. or like a what is it called the like the megaphone a megaphone a megaphone with like the little attachment. Yeah, she's talking into that raising her hand up and just kind of has this impassioned face of like, she's just given it all into her voice. Oh, that's so cool. Um, but there is a, there is a statue to her and my favorite part. Um, underneath it says Fannie Lou Hamer, October 6th, 1917 to March 14th, 1977 civil rights leader and human rights advocate. And in quotes, it says, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, which is what she sang on the bus to calm everybody down. Mm -hmm. When the cops said their bus was too yellow. Um, And the reason I found her is I bought a piece of art here. And I just love the art to begin with because it's really pretty and colorful. Mm -hmm. But I loved it because her face on it is so beautiful. And she has like, they made... The artist did, like, flowers in her hair and kind of this um, stylized look. But the quote itself is, um, well, first of all, another quote attributed to her is, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Yes. Yeah. So good. Um, 
Uh, okay, sometimes it seems like to tell the truth today is to run the risk of being killed. But if I fall, I'll fall five feet four inches forward in the fight for freedom. And the quote on the poster is, but if I fall, I'll fall five feet four inches forward. Oh. Um, under her thing. I was like, that's a cool quote. I love her. Yes. What is this lady's name? So I Googled the quote, and then I found her name, and then I started reading everything, and then I lost my mind. Mm-hmm. Because I love her so much, and I want to read more about her. There is an American experience about her. Oh, cool. Or um, not about her, but about Freedom Summer, I mm-hmm. think. The the summer where they try and get everyone to vote, and they do show her speech uh, at the convention and how Johnson dealt with it and some of his press conference. It's so bad. Um, <laughs> yeah, and then her kids, uh, well, her, one, her daughter that lived to adulthood um, definitely took on... Um, preserving her mom's legacy and talking about her and sharing these kind of stories. There's a decent amount, which I really liked, there's a decent amount of um, live audio of her telling her stories, telling little anecdotes that happened, but also like, yeah, when I was 12, I went and shared, like it's first source, right? So all the things that are in the encyclopedia page are from her mouth, which I think That's are, is really cool. cool. A, first account um and the thing that i took away from the american i'm sorry i'm talking so long this has been a long no, time that's I'm totally sorry. fine i love her so much <sighs> okay um she has this interview and she's talking about uh the speech she's about to give and then one of her one of her colleagues at the time was talking about how like martin luther king spoke at this convention and johnson was a great orator and all these all these fine speakers were talking but they wanted fanny lou to speak because her eyes were so expressive Mm -hmm. and able to engage with you that she was so she was also just so eloquently spoken but her whole demeanor was what brought you in yeah and like made you want to listen to her and i was like Listen to her. She's so great. Um, but that is Fannie Lou Hamer of Mississippi. Uh, so we should put more statues to Fannie Lou up, I think. Yes. That's amazing. Rather than Robert E. Lee. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not, mm-hmm. a, that's not a hard call at all, actually. Let's just Thank do you. that. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah, I, I, like, love learning more about, like, female civil rights leaders because mm-hmm. I feel like so much of the history at least that I got in school very much focused on like Martin Luther King and the other sort of like the male leadership which is great I mean like he's great but there's like all of these incredibly badass women doing all of this amazing work too well the whole time too where I was just like Barbara Johnson is like 10 years after Mm -hmm. which Barbara Johnson's one of my friends too and she was actually really good she was good at handling Johnson Um, yeah at the time like they were texans together but i was like oh man is it because i had this weird thought where i was like is it because of what he did to fanny lou that he like saw barbara johnson and was like i should be i should be better (laughs) do you know what i mean i wasn't great in 64 i should work on this do you know what i mean Mm -hmm. barbara seems cool let's do that and that's based on no evidence just like how the narrative works in my brain but i want to believe something like that that's my. That's when I'm writing the movie. What's gonna happen? Yeah, nice. So, it makes me also want to watch. Um, there was that Lyndon B. Johnson mini series that Brian Cranston did. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and then there's, an, I think it's more through the Martin Luther King angle of them trying to pass the Civil Rights Act. But I do want, I do want, I hope she's in it. Yeah. <laughs> Just making him nervous <laughs> the whole time. Oh, no, she's going to talk. What am I going to say? <laughs> she's so good at the talking. Mm-hmm. And there's a play adaptation of that, right? Of that movie? It was a play first. It was a play first. Mm-hmm. And then it was successful, and I think they made a miniseries on HBO. Yes, that's... What is it? The Longest I think something All out. the Way? Is that... Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, because I remember one of my one of the directors I worked with has strong feelings about that play, in part because he thinks all of the dramatic... A lot of the dramatic action is like, is Johnson going to win that election? And it's like one of the most lopsided elections in history. Like, Johnson wins by, like, a huge margin. Yeah, because do you know anything about that? No. Goldwater does this like crazy. Um, I think it was Gold. Was it Goldwater or Johnson did it about Goldwater? Yeah. So, <laughs> uh-huh. uh huh. Johnson does this political ad called Daisy, where it's a little girl in a meadow, a little white girl mm-hmm. in a meadow picking up a daisy and smelling it. And be like, oh, it's so nice. And then you see a hydrogen bomb cloud um, fill the screen. And and then it says, like, uh, oh, and as she's, like, counting on the daisy petals, like, you hear mission control counting down to, like, a bomb blast. Mm -hmm. And then Johnson says, these are the stakes. To make a world in which all of God's children can live or go into the dark. We must love each other or we must die. Vote for President Johnson on November 3rd. The stakes are too high for you to stay home. Oh my God, that's so dark. Because Johnson decided to call Barry Goldwater a crate. Wait. Oh, Barry Goldwater was... um, I don't think this is an accurate interpretation, but at the time, Johnson phrased him as, like, he's ready to, like, drop the bomb. Like, he's ready to go to war with Russia. Mm -hmm. He's ready to make this Cold War hot. You know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas John... Yeah. Wow. That's bonkers. Yeah. And apparently that was, like... This, like... Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Especially after the year that the country had just had? Yeah. That's a... Yeah, it's a, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a very um, specific moment in politics, that ad. It kind of changes the political landscape of how we are allowed to attack our opponents. Mm -hmm. And how, um, through the medium of television, you can reach so many people and maybe sway them in a way that is ignorant and biased. Mm -hmm. So thank you, President Johnson. Thank you (laughs) for the Civil Rights Act. The Voting Rights Act, um, you did a lot of acts that were good, but there's a cost um, to doing those, I think. Yes. Oof. Yeah. Good campaign manager is what he had. Yeah. That is, wow. Also, they only ran it once. They only ran it once. Mm-hmm. Because there was a big fuss about it. Damn. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's really cool. I didn't know any of that. Yeah. 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 I learned a lot about Barry Goldwater. I found like a weird documentary on him one time and I was like, I don't know anything about this guy. And I ended up, I watched that and I was like, 
bit heavy-handed, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Anyway, this is going to be a long episode. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry, friends. Jen can cut some stuff. Great. Let's, we want to take a quick break and then we can come back. Yeah, I need to get more wine. Yes, me too. <laughs> okay, cool. brought the picture if you wanted to see yes oh my god i love that isn't that beautiful yeah yeah i can see why that caught your attention this is the same artist and this is the first one i got um she also has one that's barack obama and it's really beautiful Mm -hmm. but i got this one and it made me think of the mercury 13 Mm. oh that's gorgeous kind of i like to say it's lisa frank if she went to art school Mm mm-hmm Because it's kind of like hyper-pigmented, crazy colors. Yeah. Okay, I'm so glad I went first because I'm exhausted and I just want to (laughs) listen. So this is going to be great. Amazing. Mine is, I think, going to be briefer because... I'm so sorry. No, no, that's totally... This is literally... I was like, I think I'm going to do a short one this week. All right, I'm ready. Great, you got your wine? Like an overindulgent cup, yes. Yes, let's do this. We're only in April. We got a long 2020 to go, people. Yes. Oh, let's let's maybe not think about that too hard. Okay. We're going to learn about so many ladies this year. Let's look at it that way. Yes, I love that. Okay. We just sort of started at 1917, right? That's when Fannie Lou was born? That's when Fannie Lou was born. Mm -hmm. So we're going to jump back a little bit before then for my lady. Sort of start in the 1870s. Oh, it's going to be Middle Ages, Michael? No, not that Not that far this week. That's where you like to live. <laughs> right, it's either Middle Ages or like late 19th, early 20th century. So let's do some late yeah. 19th, early 20th century. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, we're going to go to China and we're going to meet Whoa. a woman named um, Chu Jin. Okay, I don't know a lot about China. I don't either. So this, <sighs> Period. this was a... End of, end, of, end of descriptor. So this was a really nope, cool I don't for me. Get- I got to learn got a lot. Wait a minute. Oh, okay. I'm going to let you talk. Okay. Um, and we'll sort of, we'll jump into her life a little bit. We'll talk about China a little bit. Cause like, I didn't really know what was going on in China at like the turn of the 20th century. Uh, uh turns out some revolutions. Yeah. Right? China is like yeah. popping feels like a little bit too, <laughs> too like blase of a way. Maybe, to frame the, it. maybe the wrong, uh, maybe the wrong but, like, onomatopoeia word. A lot is happening. Um, yeah. like the world. Yeah. Um, but so she's born in 1875, um, in a port city in Southern China, um, called Chiamen. Uh, parents are both sort of like mid tier nobility kind of like the sort of like gentry, like old money, but like not super wealthy, but still definitely like well off kind of family uh-huh. um um do you care if i google her just like so on google images go for it. just because i want to see if there's pictures so how do you spell her name in a western uh name? it's q-i-u space j-i-n um and there are some pretty cool pictures of her <gasps> and we'll okay I'm with we'll you talk now. about why in a hot sec she looks cool. yeah um so she's gonna be raised in sort of this upper class very sort of traditional um chinese um, community. She's going to learn mm-hmm. needlework and sort of the traditional female education, very grounded in the Confucian texts, which are still sort of like the fundamental 
um, intellectual underpinning of China at this period. Um, seems like she was pretty indulged by her parents. She sort of participates in a lot of like what might be to us sort of like more troubling aspects of upper class life, but it always seems to happen like a little bit later and a little bit less severely than it might otherwise, which a lot mm-hmm. of pe- historians have viewed as sort of indicative of like her parents like letting her have a little bit more independence, but ultimately still thinking she should do the sort of traditional path. And the two mm-hmm. big parts of that um, are she gets her feet bound, which is, um, yeah, that we don't, and we don't have to get as, as a woman who wears a size 10 on a good day. Mm-hmm. Um, no, like a size nine on a good day, a 10 most of the time. I can't, even imagine what that must be like. Yeah, it's apparently incredibly horrific. And for the rest of your life. Yes. Um, And so the, like, asterisk to this is apparently her feet weren't bound as tightly, so not as many of the bones in her feet broke through part of the process. Um, Should we tell people what feet Yeah, so it's this... um, sort of traditional upper class Chinese practice that originates sometime in the like nine to 1100 BCE. And it's a process by which um, young girls feet are over a period of time broken. And then the toes and the forward part of the feet are bound underneath the back part to create this like incredibly unrealistically small petite foot Um, and it's a mark of wealth and class in large part because once it happens you can't really do much like it's very painful to walk you can't perform manual labor you can't really travel it's a a corset of the foot (laughs) yeah i mean before white people get weird and be like what a weird tradition okay we were binding women in different ways do you know what i mean like so let's all calm down it's all been tragic yeah it's and it's a it's a very similar thing right it is just it is a standard of beauty and it happens to involve mutilating the human body the whole concept of women fainting is because they couldn't breathe because they had corsets on. Not because they were frailer. Mm-hmm. They were just wearing garments that didn't allow them to breathe. Yes. <laughs> so, of course you need a fainting couch. Yeah. Walking to the kitchen is going to make you pass out. Exactly. And so this is... Let alone, like, you're not eating, probably, because you can't fit any food in mm-hmm. there. And so this is, like, that sort of exact same cultural force just acting on a different part of yeah. women's bodies. Yeah. Um, and there's like some, so there's that end of it. And then the other end of it um, is her parents arrange her marriage to the son of a local merchant family. Um, and great. As we've learned, she's how old, Michael? She is 21, which for Ooh. missing history is ancient for an arranged marriage. Let's pour one out for these parents. Um, Treating their, treating their kid like a human. Yeah, and so that, again, is sort of indicative of, like, her parents giving her a little bit more leeway um, in that, like, does have an arranged marriage, but doesn't have it at the sort of earlier age that is traditional for such an arrangement. Um, and for the first few years, marriage seems to be going relatively well. Um, lives with her husband in the Hunan province, has two kids, doing the sort of, like, upper class 
respectable housewife gig. Um, Mm -hmm. But then the family's going to move to Beijing in 1903. And this is when things get radical, um, which is, yes. So this is when um, Jin is going to start coming into contact with the political life of China. I mean, we don't do well-behaved ladies on this podcast. Yeah, I think that's sort of a given. Um, And this Mm -hmm. 1903 is basically the point where she goes from being like, maybe a little rambunctious, maybe a little bit precocious, but sort of in line broadly with the expectations of a woman of her social class to as far Mm -hmm. left of that as you can possibly get um, for the period. So she like starts spending time with other women in the capital, develops what we would call like a political conscience, um, Mm -hmm. really gets interested in political affairs in China at this period. And like, oh boy, what a time to get interested in political affairs in China. Um, so, like, the technical term for how China is doing at this point is that it's a mess. It is, like, a hot, (laughs) hot mess. (laughs) Well, you're... We're in 1903, so, like, early 20th century. it's not a great time for a lot of people. Yeah. And so China, over the course of the last century, the Qing dynasty, who had been ruling China for, like, a couple hundred years at this point, um is running into, like, basically two really big issues. Issue one is the encroaching European imperial powers, who over the course of the century, uh, through wars and unequal treaties and basically through force, impose a lot of territorial and economic control over parts of China. So this is the period when European presence in coastal cities becomes really pronounced, when there's a really large European presence in Beijing itself, um, and that those Europeans have rights, they're existing outside of the Chinese legal system, um, and in some cases, exercising what we would consider as like sovereignty over parts of China. So that's bad. And then on the other hand, you also have this pretty restless population who, in addition to being very unhappy about the whole European situation, is also unhappy about the way that the government functions. So it's sort of stagnating. It's got this really formalized civil service system that's based on taking exams centered around sort of Confucian learning. But what that's basically generated is this very stilted, very ineffective, very conservative civil service that can't do anything and so you have like an ineffective government you have european imperialism sort of encroaching all over china and a lot of people are unhappy about both of those things and unsurprisingly the Qing dynasty doesn't do well with this um mm-hmm. and so in sort of 1899 to 1901 we have what we know as the boxer rebellion Okay, I've heard of this. Yeah, which is this this anti-imperialist, anti-foreign, anti-Christian sort of coalition that decides that they're sort of fed up with the way Europeans and foreigners have been behaving in China, and so they start attacking foreign outposts and Christians across the country. Um, And the sort of famous battle is they start besieging the embassy district in Beijing, 
and that at a certain point the government sort of throws in its lot with the boxers and it's like we we're going to help you out we think maybe this is our opportunity to kick all of the europeans out of the country uh unsurprisingly sounds familiar doesn't go super well for them um so they the there's this group of european powers as well as america and japan who sort of gather a bunch Mm -hmm. of soldiers invade china put down this rebellion and impose like an incredibly onerous and humiliating treaty on china to sort of wrap the whole thing up that sounds familiar too. yeah so that is sort of like that is what's happening right before she lands in beijing and so you have mm-hmm. this dynasty that is struggling to figure out what is it going to do it's trying to figure out how to modernize it's trying to figure out how to deal with european incursions how to deal with a population that's like not too happy with it um and in the process it's becoming really authoritarian like obviously it's a monarchy there's already like the inherent authoritarianism in that but they become Mm -hmm. increasingly concerned with cracking down on dissidents on revolutionary groups on sort of all of these people who are trying in some way shape or form to change the status quo because there's no vehicle Mm -hmm. for political representation because it is a monarchy they are all sort of forced to do it outside of the law And, like, we've seen that happen before in the past. It goes Mm -hmm. really well for just Mm -hmm. about everyone. I love a totalitarian government. They're great at it. It's why they stay in power so Mm -hmm. long. Oh, wait. Yeah. And so this is the political situation that Jin is in in the capital. And she, Mm -hmm. like, loves it isn't quite the right word, but sort of, like, flourishes in this environment and starts Mm -hmm. connecting with people on the more radical end of politics who are interested in modernizing the country, interested in overthrowing the ruling dynasty, interested in, mm-hmm. you know, God forbid, making a republic in China. And as part of this sort of transition into radical politics, she starts drinking a lot, which is always mm-hmm. a good sign, um, wearing male clothes, both Chinese and Western, um, and studying ma- martial arts um, but sort of the what? Yeah. So why? Where is this movie? I don't know, and I really want it. Apparently, she becomes really excellent with the sword. Is sort of her weapon of choice in her training. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there is a picture um, in the if you look at the New York Times obituary about her um, mm-hmm. in traditional Chinese garb, but with a fairly badass dagger in her hand and like stone cold look in her yeah eyes. that's like the first image on google images yeah. it's her don't fuck with me look which comes up at this period <laughs> um and the really big like the sort of big move she makes while she's in beijing is she decides to unbind her feet so <gasps> sort of re- trying to reverse and reclaim that control over that part of her body Um, And sort of, it's a symbol of her rejecting a lot of the more, like, patriarchal aspects of traditional Chinese society. Wow. Um, But, so she does all that, which, like, in and of itself, those are all radical things for an upper-class woman in China to do at that that time. Uh, But then she's going to, she's going to pull a Nora from a doll's house and up and moves 
leaves her family behind, sells all her jewelry, and in 1904 goes to Japan, which is where this large group of Chinese expats lives. Um, it's where, mm. you know, all of the people who can't be conducting revolutionary politics in China because they'll get arrested have gone. And she really wants to sort of jump headfirst into this revolutionary world there. Um, and it's interesting because a lot of what we know about her and her experience of this time in her life is because she's also a poet and a writer. And so we have some of her writings from the period. Um, obviously, mm-hmm. I'm only able to read them in English translation, uh, but they're still like incredibly beautiful. And you get a really good sense of how she's struggling, both with this idea of like, what does it mean to be like a modern Chinese woman in this world? Mm-hmm. But then also, what does it mean for there to be a modern China. And for her, those ideas of like, how does womanhood and nationalism fit together are gonna be sort of this really strong theme throughout all of her work. You mean half the people? Half the people. And it's, and she sort of has this realization that if you get half the people educated and let them do things, it's a lot easier to like, get shit done. It's better for everyone? Almost like it's better for everyone. Mm, but. Michael, won't there be problems? You mean because men will have to do things they don't want to do and women will get to do things no, they want to do? No, usually because their uteruses are going to fall out or something. Like, they usually care about Yeah, that. so um, surprisingly there is nothing to be found no. about moving oh, no. uteruses or anything like that. Um, okay. But there, I thought you were going to go somewhere no, else. But no, no, no. Funny you should say that. <laughs> For ch- she tried to get on a horse one time and a man threw her into a river because he thought she was a witch. Uh. No, luckily, we no witches, no rivers, no okay. throwing off horses. Um, okay, good. But so, so as she's traveling to Japan, she writes um, this really gorgeous poem, which I just have like a little bit of. Uh, but she okay. writes, cut off from my family, I leave my native land. Unbinding my feet, I clean out a thousand years of poison. With heated heart arose all women's spirits. Alas, this delicate kerchief here is half stained with blood and half with tears. Oh. Yeah. So it's obviously like an incredibly difficult thing for her to do this. But she also thinks it's like so important that it's worth doing. Yeah. Um, Which is pretty incredible. Uh, So she gets to Japan. I mean, well... Technical question. Yes. If you unbind your feet, they don't go back to normal. No, but it like the and this is sort of where people are like a little unclear about how it all works, like whether or not her feet were actually broken when they were bound when she was a child, or sort of what what that process was, because she is able to do a fair amount of martial arts training and is very like mobile in her later life, which wouldn't be something she'd be able to do if her feet were like fully bound. Controversially, is it also an element of like, you bind the foot to make the foot look small, but you also don't want to look at a broken foot, so you keep it bound, you keep it hidden. And so the mystery is like, it is a tiny foot in a shoe to someone looking at it. But if you look at the foot outside of the binding, it's where the a revulsion could set mm-hmm. in. And that's not what we want from our w- women yeah. either. We don't want to be repulsed by them. So we keep that hidden. Totally. The mystery remains intact. So even if she did have sort of a bound foot look and she took the binding off, 
to be like, look at what you're doing to us. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> Who else has feet that look like this? Um, no, I'm going to wave them around and show you what your stupid policy is mm-hmm. doing. Because if you're breaking our feet, why shouldn't you look at what you're doing? Yeah. Yeah, and I don't... If you have to hide it, then maybe there's a connotation that it's gross and we should stop doing mm-hmm. it. Yeah, and that is sort of ultimately... It's really interesting, the sort of like... So foot binding is going to be outlawed in China just a couple of years later in 1912. That is too late. Yes. But the interesting it's thing too late. is like what really gets it isn't even necessarily this argument that like, this is horrible, why are you doing this? Like you are inflicting so much pain on these humans but rather it's that it becomes sort of a national embarrassment like it is it is dishonoring china in the eyes of the world to do this because the rest of the world views this practice as something unacceptable and that's what well, motivates that's problematic the in a whole other right? way that's the thing because you can't police other cultures based on what's revolting to you but that's what makes it go away in a sense like, and the other thing is that... I guess that's a okay thing, but... It's oh. problematic. Um, but it doesn't... It obviously, like, doesn't end immediately. We should put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> Missing history. It's hashtag problematic pretty much every... Yep, week. that... That's our brand. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Um, okay. Well, you know, at least we live today when nobody does it anymore. Yes. Or if they do, it's very weird and in between, but... Yeah, and it, it is... It is no longer an accepted practice in China, but it doesn't mm-hmm. obviously die out right when it's outlawed in 1912. It's a much slower process than anyone would want oh, it to God. be. When's it done? Is it done yeah, now? Yeah, totally done now. There's only, oh, there's okay. a few women, um, like older women in certain parts of China whose feet were bound when they were children, um, but it's uh, not a continuing practice. You're also doing it to like babies. You're, not baby, baby, literally, but like little kids. Yeah. And like, oh, Michael, you're telling a girl that she looks attractive in a certain way when she's like eight. Mm-hmm. It's so unfortunate. Yes, yes, <laughs> it's it so is. Unfortunate. And it so correlates to like, did you see that study that like most girls start to feel ashamed about their bodies by like age eight? No, but that's atrocious. Like eight to ten is when shame starts to set in for kids. And it's predominantly in women, in female children, or identify as female children. That all of a sudden they start to dislike things about themselves. (sighs) So then when society is like, hey, that thing that everybody has, change it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's just, oh god. It's so... It's awful. (sighs) Poison. Yeah. Okay. Um, Great. So it's gone now. Yay! Yeah, well, little Sorry. victories. Too much wine. Uh, so going. she's gonna. So she goes to Japan in 1904, ostensibly mm-hmm. to go to school, but really to get connected with all of these secret societies happening at the time. Um, and f- again, yeah. Where's this movie? Is there a Chinese movie? Of her? So there is like a um, docudrama about her that at least was being developed a couple of years ago. I don't know yeah. if it ever actually got produced. Because um, I just fully had a scene in my mind of like, she's going to a speakeasy, but it's martial arts. Yes. Oriented and like and, kicks butt. And you and actually like fight club. have no idea how right you are, but we'll, no but we'll get there. We will get there very oh, soon. Damn it. Sorry. Um, but right now it's, it's super interesting. You should mention the like movie thing. 
because there's obviously some like Mulan parallels here and she herself mm-hmm. actually like read a lot of stuff about Mulan and sort of modeled herself consciously in a lot of ways after the Mulan figure in Chinese mythology so- which is just like it's interesting to think about her thinking about herself and being like I think Mulan is the way I want to go this sort of like knight errant figure who's like being badass like learning all these martial arts running around trying to change things and that was like very much her vibe when she gets to Japan um and she's there and she's like working with these secret societies whose hope is to go back to China and overthrow the government um and this is really when she develops that sort of dual consciousness of like if we're going to have national success we need to liberate women and she sees those things as inseparable like you can't have a successful modern china without equality for women which like checks out i think we would agree with that statement Mm -hmm. that like equality for women is necessary period i mean yeah but we're still putting it on t-shirts so we're not there yet yep uh and part of the reason we're not there yet is or at least in this particular case um is because what happens next doesn't go super well for her um so she's gonna go back to china in 1906 there's sort of this mass movement of these sort of young radicals from japan to china at this period um getting ready for what will be the revolution in 1911 So there's, like, lots of revolutionary activity happening. Everything is, like, starting to move a little bit more quickly. Um, And so her first thing when she gets back to China is she runs a women's journal where she writes about issues particularly relating to women, like arranged marriages, like foot binding, but always in this broader revolutionary context. And she's writing in vernacular Chinese as opposed to classical Chinese, in an attempt to make it more accessible to people. Like, a really interesting project. And the government shuts her down after she writes, like, two issues. Why would they have an issue with that? Who's to say, right? (laughs) Um, So then next year, in 1907, um, by this point she's moved um, to Shaoxing, which is a city on the eastern coast of China, where she is running what is in effect like a martial arts school that is also a secret training ground for revolutionaries. So very like martial arts speakeasy kind of setup. Um, not really sure what the context of this is, but a couple of the articles about her I read say at this point she learned how to make bombs. It's just like a skill she's acquired, which is pretty badass. Um, mm-hmm. And she's like running this school that is basically training young people how to be revolutionaries. Um, So then things start going poorly. So in July of that year, she finds out that her cousin who had founded the school um, and who is sort of a big deal in some of these revolutionary circles has been captured by the government because he assassinated his boss. Turns out they don't like when you do that, especially when your boss is like a senior government official. So, like, that's that's not great. Um, and so she finds out about this, and it's pretty clear they're going to come for her next. Uh, but rather than running or hiding, 
she's like, no, I'm just going to fight them. We're just going to like stand our ground and see how it goes, which is like incredibly brave and also doesn't go well for her. So she gets captured a couple of days later and is executed on July 15th when she's just like 31 years old. No. Yeah. So ultimately like she, so she moved to Beijing in 1903 and in the course of four years leaves her husband goes to japan becomes involved with revolutionary activity comes back to china runs a school for training revolutionaries and then gets captured and executed by the government ew yeah that's not how i wanted that to end right it's a bit of a downer um but i guess the like the positive spin you could look at it is in having that trajectory and having that really unfortunate end, she becomes a symbol both for like Chinese nationalism and for Chinese feminism. And is Mm -hmm. interestingly like one of the only figures that both like communist mainland China and nationalist China and Taiwan both hold as like a central mythological figure of the revolutionary movement Normally, like, Hmm. the nationalists have their people, and the communists have their people, and they have very different mythologies about the, like, development of modern China. But she's a figure that because, because she dies so young, and because she's so focused on these, like, deeply feminist, deeply tied to women's equality issues, she's really easy to sort of put in whatever political box you want. And so people on both sides of that divide have been able to sort of hold her up as a symbol, which in a way is like a really interesting thing. Um, And she has this sort of very deep mythology in China because of it. Um, Mm -hmm. And in fact, like the Chinese government. Like a similar to a Mulan or is Mulan like legendary? I think like definitely they are in a similar category. I don't know sort of where they rank in terms of how much sort of badass credit they have, but they definitely live in the same world of like these sort of quintessentially Chinese, quintessentially feminist figures. I think the big difference Mm -hmm. is like Mulan does her thing. And then when it's all said and done, like comes back and like resumes like a fairly quote unquote normal life. And that Jin doesn't that like, her she takes that step of rebellion one step further and is like Mm -hmm. i reject like any sort of sense of like normal female life at least as it's constructed by a patriarchal society Hmm. which is pretty badass when you come to think of it she's amazing i love her i love the i love the pictures we have of her yeah they're really cool um and and because she does sort of dress not just as like femme traditional chinese but adopts western male and chinese male dress there's this great picture of her with like a walking stick and like a little like newsies style cap uh Hmm. that's pretty cool like looks like very very androgynous look but like very badass i love that i mean i just the well is so deep, Michael. Yes. Um, How do you say her name one more time? Chu Jin. Chu Jin. Um, 
I, I mean, I never even... How did you find out about so it? So she was on Jen's list, which was really... I just, like, was reading through it. Because, like, for those of you who have not yet seen Jen's list, because we haven't posted it publicly, Jen it created this, like, amazing list of, like, 70-something women that we should look into, sorted by, like, region and what they did. And I was just, like, scrolling through it. And I was like, she seems so cool. I can't mm. not um I can't not read about her. And the moment I did, I was like down this rabbit hole of like all of this Chinese history well, I didn't an, know. In an effort to not be like Western and white too. I feel yeah. Like. It's it's like a definite pursuit of our self education. It's yes. like the reason we're doing this is to find out about women we didn't know about. So like let's genuinely try. Um and yeah, I mean amazing. I love it. I love learning about China. I didn't know anything about that. Um, I knew a little bit about foot binding, but that's really where it ended. Yeah. But yeah, early 20th century China. Not a lot before Mao. When's he show up? Uh, he shows up in the like 1930s. Okay. Um, so with the rest of everybody turning over leaders at that point. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, that's really where like I start. I mean, I know there's stuff with Chiang Kai-shek, right? Mm-hmm. In Taiwan? Yeah. Or... So there's this, there's this basically, the period after, pretty much from like after the revolution through World War II, there's these mm. competing warlord factions in China that are sort of fighting for control of the country. And eventually it develops into a situation where you have like the Chinese Nationalist Party, which is Chiang Kai-shek and who will eventually become Taiwan fighting mm-hmm. with the communists. And then Japan invades in the late 30s, I think. And that basically, everyone's like... World War II, they invade China. Yeah, but they, yeah. and the, interestingly, they invade China a bit before, like, World War II, as we think of it, starts. Well, when when uh, Hitler's doing his thing, Japan's doing theirs, it, Yeah, right? exactly. They're the two. They're going to split the world, but really, secretly, they're planning to take out the other party when they can. Like, that's the secret awful part about it. Where they're like, yeah, let's be friends until I kill you. And you're like, whoa, okay. Yeah. But so that that's Good like Lord. this like, brief period where like, maybe we'll team up. What is up. Endgame for you guys? Like, what is it? Uh, <laughs> I don't get it. Who's to say? Whatever is in people, or specifically like early 20th century people of like, and one day I will rule the world. And I'm like, why do you want it? Why do you want that? Why do you want to do? Why do you want that? Yeah. Just I don't have that gene. I mean, I don't just. That's why my people like <laughs> went to Ohio and were like, "Let's just have farms. This is all we need. Please go away." Like, and also like as a as a human uh, being who's tried to like get enough people in a rehearsal room doing one thing at one time, the thought of having to run the whole world just seems exhausting. Like, when do you have time for yourself if you're doing that? The well must be so dry for love and appreciation mm-hmm. that you must fill it with the planet. Yes. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And all the people on it and everyone knows you. I mean, it's just, it's myopic, narcissistic meets, you know. I don't know. Let's ask a psychiatrist. It's that. It's that level of yeah, stuff. There's, you know I mean? there's a lot like, to Who hurt there. you? Who didn't hug you? Who told you that you needed to be the most important? 
right. Yeah. What's going on in that little noggin of yours? So much stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, oh, I mean, it's just bizarre. Well, cool. Yeah. Thanks for that. I liked You're it. Welcome. Thank you. Learned a lot this week. I need week. to consult Jen's list for my next in- my next um, inspiration. It was super super helpful. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Well, you can cross her off the list. Did you move her off? I or highlighted her, off? her in green. I was like super excited. I was like great. we have done her now. Okay, cool. Okay, great. Accomplished. All right. Well, that was so fun. Was. Same time next week. Shall we sign off? I think so. Uh, what is next? Week? Oh, sorry. That I was. I was just going to do that as a sign off, but. Oh, yeah, let's do it then. Let's try it again. Ready and go. Same time next week? You betcha. See you then. Bye. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs>you enjoyed listening to this episode of missing history if you have suggestions for women you think we should profile email us at missinghistorypodcast at gmail.com you can get in touch with us at miss history pod on twitter or missing history on instagram we're also on facebook at missing history if you like the show please rate review and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts thanks to our producer jen and Catherine for doing our social media thank you for listening to missing history